My guest on this edition of the podcast is, I confess instantly, a good personal friend. And he became a personal friend by appearing quite frequently on the radio program that I did for many years at WGN Radio in Chicago. Uh, the name of the guest, you are perhaps wondering, Christopher Fitzhenry Roebling. Uh, you know, I only discovered the Fitzhenry rather lately. Uh, it means, I guess, son of Henry, doesn't it? Bastard son of Henry, yeah. Bastard son it's of a, Henry? Well, it comes from the French, fils Henri. Oh. Fils Henri. I see. So the, all of the, uh, after the Norman invasion, so sort of 1066 period. That's and all when that, yes, right. These folks would start showing up. <laughs> Who the hell is this guy? And he's Henri. And I see. That turned into Fitzhenry or Fitzrandolph as now, the case may be. I never knew that. But the Fitz pref uh, prefix is common in uh, uh, Scottish names, and I guess in Scots names more than in Irish names. So Fitzgerald well, means bastard son of Gerald, doesn't it? Yeah, there's, there's actually the Fitzhenrys and the Fitzgeralds were founded by the same person whose name uh -huh. was Princess Nesta, and she was a Welsh princess of all things. She actually started three huge families, the, oh. the Berries, the Fitzhenrys, and the Fitzgeralds. She was married three times. Actually, now, well, the Fitzhenrys... What a shame we sure can't develop married. that now in further conversation for the next hour, but something more <laughs> urgent... Something more urgent, as you know, recommends itself. Let me tell our listeners one or two things about you first. Uh, you are, of course, a leading guy in PR, as they call it, in Chicago, essentially in crisis management. And you are um, uh, in a firm run by the uh, wife of the former governor of Illinois, namely Jane Carr Thompson. Um, but in addition, in addition to that, you have been a political journalist for, and broadcaster for many, many years. Uh, on various stations, including these days on WGN-TV, where you, I think you do a weekly dialogue with a liberal uh, leftist woman. That's right. We're, I, we're, we're our analysts for our respective uh, points of view, and uh, we go on the morning news, which is a great program at WGN-TV, and we're very happy to do it. They're, they're you, do a sort of, you do a political Mutt and Jeff routine once a week. Um, yeah, and I'm, I'm the less good-looking of the two. I, I, can, I can testify to that. Um, <laughs> and, of course, um, you uh, have in your rather um, varied career, you've been the, one of the election commissioners for the city of Chicago, or was it for the whole state of Illinois? I forget. The city of Chicago. Right. And we're going to talk about elections right now. And beyond elections, we're going to talk about politics and the politics that ultimately pays off by succeeding or failing in elections. Uh, but I think we should also we should make clear what your political identity is. I would not be inaccurate if I called you a systematic uh, and principled conservative. Do you agree? Well, at some level, one hopes, yeah. Um, and uh, systematic, uh, one, one also hopes to be practical in the sense of delivering actual solutions that help people. Good. So deliver some solutions right now. You uh, are essentially Republican in political loyalty, or at least in voting preference. Do, do, you, do you, in fact, hold membership in the Republic? Are you now or have you ever been a card-carrying Republican? You know, I'm everything but the card. Yeah, I mean, I, I was, uh, I mean, not this ancient history it doesn't go back to the Battle of Hastings, but I was raised a Democrat, and between 1972 and 1976, I underwent a 
a conversion. It started when I was living overseas in Finland, and I saw how the Soviet Union feared Nixon, and I began to understand the role Nixon played, and that sort of unlocked a lot of Republican foreign policy for me as a kid. And by the time I got home and the nomination of Jimmy Carter, I was pretty well finished with Democrat domestic policy. And so between those two big polar events or or sort of signpost events of 72 and 76, by uh, by 1976, I voted my first uh, presidential for Gerald Ford and have been that way ever since. So you voted, your first choice was a Republican. Speaking of the Republicans now, <clears throat> I hear a rumor that there's some division within the Republican Party these days. Uh, is that exaggerated or is it possibly in fact the case? I, I, I think the person who told you that rumor has very high credibility. The truth is, yes, you know, Milt, uh, I think I think there, uh, parties out of power go through identity crises. So... You know, I don't want to be Homeric about this, but we've got a, a there is a party over there someplace on the Republican side of the aisle that is, uh, let us say, with fits and starts trying to find the right um, statement to make to the general public. And uh, so that's that is going on in, in living color as we speak. Yes, sir. And let's review that just a bit in terms of uh, personification. Who is uh, who would represent for you an outstanding sort of establishment Republican uh, worried about the Republican radicals? And who would represent for you a uh, sort of Republican radical, or at least a Republican disciplined conservative who wants more action along those lines uh, in the Senate, say two people? Yeah, I, I think that John McCain has cast himself, um, notwithstanding his earlier, that is to say, years ago, uh, sense of being a quote maverick, I think he now represents a Washington establishment view of what the Republican Party should be, and I think probably the the contenders for the um, reform mantle in the Senate would be uh, Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Senator Marco Rubio of Florida, or Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky. Yeah. Well, let's or say Senator we, Mike Lee of Utah. You you find about four or five, and that's it. I'm afraid. Uh, but well, let's, uh, no, I I think there are other there are quieter folks. You know, Tom Coburn, um, who is now announced because of cancer and some other situations, he's, he is going to leave the United States. I mean, I I think that there is a not to say a center of gravity, but a, a center of influence, right, uh, in the Republican caucus in the Senate that is moving in the direction of, for popular terms, I would say radical reform. And I think that's what's needed. I, I'm more excited about those folks being in the Senate than I am about sort of establishmentarians. Well, what, for example, does Mitch McConnell represent? Well, He's, of he, course, he the minority to, leader. He must stand astride, you know, these, these like any, like any um, legislative party leader, he must find ways to um, overcome or bridge divides within his caucus. But, uh, and, and to the extent that he's been in Washington a long time and to the extent that, extent that he has, you know, had to deal not just with his own, the majority of his caucus, but also with the majority in the United States Senate, you know, I, um, Mitch McConnell, 
I think his instincts, his instincts are those of the reformer. And that's been true since he was a reforming county commissioner down in, you know, the county that encompasses Louisville, Kentucky. Um, but in the Senate, you know, leaders reflect the majority of their caucus. And I think that's moderated those instincts. And so, so he's a little bit betwixt and between. Now, what, let's uh, do a simple contrast between as two representative figures of the two different major divisions visible in the Republican Party right now. Let's compare McCain and Cruz. Uh, what in principle, what in uh, an advocated program, what in reflexive uh, rejection of the position for each of them of the positions of the other? What characterizes the two of them? What is there about yeah. Cruz and his works in ways which offends McCain? Yeah, I think that Cruz uh, Cruz fails to accept the status quo as bearing legitimacy, and and uh, McCain might not like the status quo, but he and he said this to me in Chicago just a few months ago. I sat with him for breakfast, and uh, we chatted about this extensively, and he was pretty upset with Ted Cruz at at that time. Uh, this was after the shutdown. And, and and McCain is somebody who sort of accepts the status quo as as a legitimate starting place and wants wants to work from there. This is maybe an echo of this old uh, this what Ted Kennedy said of Bobby, whether or not it was true. And I let's say that it was, but you know, seeing things as they are, asking you know, seeing things as they've never been and asking why not. You know that that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I I think the Cruz represents someone who is prepared not in any sort of disorderly way. He's not a disorderly person, nor does he seek a disorderly result. But Cruz, I think, intellectually, intellectually, Cruz wants to start afresh and say, we want to help people who are in need of help. Let's build a program that physically delivers that result. Let's not build a program that takes on a, uh, a center of gravity itself that turns into a big out-of-control bureaucracy in Washington. And, uh, you know, McCain, I've been in Washington all this time, let me tell you. We've fought the bureaucracy many times. We've lost. The best we can do is incrementally move it in this direction or in that direction. So I think that's the intellectual tension then that gets played out politically, socially, personally, and what have you. Is, it, is that difference being played out uh, in Washington? And is it being played out, say, in Springfield, Illinois? Uh, we are both residents of Illinois, and you're very interested in Illinois politics, as well as national politics. Is this division in the Republican Party one that essentially divides the party and thus weakens it for any uh, particular electoral adventures it aspires to uh, to undertake, I think it's playing out wherever there are wherever there are three Republicans uh -huh. uh, gathered in the name of of, of uh, Abraham Lincoln or Ronald Reagan. Yes, it's playing out. I, sometimes with with much higher stakes. So the difference between Washington and Springfield, Springfield, Illinois, the Republican caucuses in both the Senate and the House are super minorities, which is a way of saying the Democrats have super majorities. The Democrats can do anything they want in either house of the General Assembly of the state of Illinois in Springfield, that means the Republicans are in super minority status. 
And because the Democrats can do anything they want in either house, uh, the state is in a situation of extreme fiscal crisis at the moment. Yes, and and in fact, I, yes, it, yes, that is the case. But but that's that's so so yes, there are these divisions in Springfield, and there are I, frankly, they, I think that they're on county councils. They're probably to some extent on school boards, even though they're yeah. nominally nonpartisan. But and 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 they're in fifty state capitals and et cetera, et cetera. But in it, but in the Senate of the United, I mean, sorry, in the House and the Senate, it, it takes on much greater stakes, and it's much more evident, say, in the House where you've got the Republican majority, and in the Senate where the Democrats are constantly looking for Republicans to go along with something that they want to do, and and we saw that they they've had a spotty record reaching out to Republicans. So, uh, yes, I think it is going on all over. Uh, the Republican Party to a greater or lesser extent. Who is it in Alice in Wonderland who is late for the Tea Party and keeps, uh, as he rushes by, says, I'm late, I'm late, I'm late. Uh, and more important still, what is the Tea Party in uh, the Republican world these days? What does it really represent? Uh, how strong or less than strong is it? Uh, what are the policy differences between the Tea Party and the establishment portion of the Republican Party? Yeah. Thank you for asking that question, uh, Milt. Thank you for having me on as, as well. And and let me, I'm so glad you asked that. Because the Tea Party, I, I think very, gen, I, I believe the Tea Party is a genuine, uh, a, a genuine movement of Americans who are very dissociated from their government and its actions. Now, I want to get back to that in a second, but the, 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 the Tea Party's viability, the fact that it's still around and that we're still talking about this still might be influential, also points up a difference, I think, on the establishment side. And here, here's what I mean. There are folks who might in their hearts, I was saying this kind of about Mitch McConnell, I think if Mitch McConnell were majority leader we would see a very different program out of Mitch McConnell, right? Uh, but there, there is a, a ongoing distrust inside the Republican Party between folks who are sort of, lack of a better term, Tea Party-type folks and establishmentarians because the Tea Party folks sort of believe that establishmentarians are not true to Republican ideals and actually are representing some kind of special interest relative to the status quo, typically one involving corporate welfare. Okay. So there's a, there is a distrust within the party uh, and, and maybe that is returned by establishmentarians towards the Tea Party as, you know, that the establishmentarians think Tea Party folks are actually incapable of governing or of making responsible choices relative to governing. Well, now look, who are these Tea Party people really? What's their ideology or what, who are their mentors? What persons uh, and what patterns of political thought have inspired uh, and uh, uh, act activated them? What is, there, there, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, you know, our mutual friend Joe Morris did a great uh, talk. He worked together. Uh, he worked up a speech on this, and and mm -hmm. his speech, 
he had, he had done a lot of research, and I think that this has all been borne out in the years since, because he, he was attempting to explain the Tea Party to the party at large. And he said, look, these people have texts, and they, they, they refer to the text, and they interpret the text, and they, they try to move from their text to decisions about public policy today. And he's, of course, referring basically to founding documents and, and uh, the, the, the idea of a, a Jeffersonian conservatism that limits government so that it is highly capable at a limited number of tasks and not engaged in a broad number of tasks at which it is poorly suited. So there's this, the, the, obviously the name, the Tea Party, which uh, sounds the note of the revolution, but also refers to the acronym text enough already, uh, already um, they're, they're referring back to revolutionary times, founders, founding documents, and I believe that they think they are involved in a movement to limit the size and the scope, the mandate, and the activities of the federal government. What gives the, uh, the left the opportunity to describe them, not as you've described them, but to describe them as crazies, as, um, uh, as anti-democratic uh, in the uh, full sense, as racist, Etc. 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 If you listen to the people on, um, on, let me see, MSNBC, for example, uh, they're they're regularly engaged in so characterizing uh, the Tea Party, or uh, to do a quick uh, and ruinous job on some personal uh, political, on some particular political person who has arisen and is now visible. They say he's a Tea Party person, or he's this is pure Tea Party. We can't stand uh, having people like this. Uh, in Congress or in state houses, get rid of them. That is the well, Tea Party becomes essentially a uh, uh, a dirty word in American politics right. on the, on the side of the left. How have they been able to get away with that? I would say because the media and the academy and other social institutions are over overwhelmingly dominated by folks of the left. And I think that there is a ongoing requirement in their circumstance and in their, their activity almost always requires a boogie person or a boogie mm -hmm. man, but I don't want to be gender specific. So a boogie person. Yeah. And I think that the tea party is sort of, it serves as a, a one might say a whipping poor person or, or a boogie man or something that explains away failures of the regime to deliver on um, you know, promise X or assurance Y or guarantee Z. And so, so what you have is the, the tea party. This is, this is reflected by the way, in a, a fascinating little book that I read because I had to go deliver a lecture at your former employer, the university of Chicago. I went down to the Harris school and I got a copy of the syllabus milk from the two professors before I went down. And I tried to read all of the books that the kids would have read before you know, the date on which I was getting to, yeah. just so I had a sense of what the kids were reading and thinking about. And there was this monograph in there, um, or there was, yeah, a monograph about the Tea Party by two political scientists from, the, from Harvard University. They happened to be, the, the, the political scientists happened to be women, and they had gone all over the country, and they had stayed at the home of Tea Party volunteers, and they had gone to Tea Party rallies, and they had uh, sort of picked up Tea Party literature, 
And it was absolutely amazing to read this book and to see the genuine in the acknowledgments. I can't thank these people enough. They've never met more sincere, honest Americans. And uh, the conclusions that we draw are our own, and they don't reflect on any of the individuals we met. And they basically you know, created this sort of reverse compositional fallacy where everyone we met was a lovely, dedicated American taking time out of their day to go to the public square and to hold up a placard and to march against the expansion of the federal government. And uh, we never witnessed anything racist or untoward, but the Tea Party is, in fact, a bulwark of intolerance in American society. Yeah. So, so I... Who, I, who, um, are the, who are the authors of that monograph? Is Thea oh, gosh, Scott, I have to... Is Thea Scotchpole one of them? Yeah, I will get it to you, and, and maybe you can post it on your website. All and, right. uh, and I And I, I urge people of the right or the left or the center or people who are to, to take a look at it because it's uh, it was one of the first academic works that attempted to describe and explain and predict the Tea Party phenomenon and uh, was picked up, you know, obviously on a moment's notice by the Harris School at the University of Chicago. And I th to get back to your question, I think they're regular Americans, but I think the media and the left and their friends in the academy are all against any institutional questioning of the left's version of what is and what should be. And so they are cast in the boogie person role. And those other Republicans, the ones that we're calling in this conversation, the establishment Republicans, they are very, very frightened of being uh, linked to the Tea Party or being seen shaking hands with, or even worse, uh, uh, sharing a drink with a Tea Party member of Congress. The whole point is that they poison the well or they poison uh, our public image. And we must, if possible, suppress uh, Tea Party kinds of people within the Republican Party itself. That's my perception of what's happening. Am I right? Yes, generally. I, I, I think there are a lot of folks. There, there are, I, have to, I have to now ask for the audience's indulgence as I create a little mental matrix. For many thousands of years, people have talked about moderates and conservatives in the Republican Party, but you've got, mm -hmm. you have now pointed to the division, which I believe illustrates the significance not of the moderate conservative uh, intellectual model uh, for understanding tension in the Republican Party, but the real tension is across the fault line that you mentioned. So, so the establishmentarians, whether they're well-intentioned or whether they're captive by various special interests. The establishmentarians are, are somehow connected with and somehow reconciled to the status quo, whatever that might be, whether it's Springfield, Illinois, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, or, or Washington, D.C. And, and, and many of them are, are absolutely terrified of a systematic questioning of the status quo that's represented by folks like Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio. And so this, this uh, antipathy has been played out in Republican primaries. And we all know about Delaware and Nevada. And these are places where Tea Party candidates won or lost. And they, they prevailed in a primary. They lost in a general. Other Tea Party candidates prevailed in the primary, won in the general. Um, they've got a spotty record. Establishmentarians have a spotty record. But now they're, the, the establishmentarians down in, back in Washington are are wondering if they are they are terrified of being caught in a primary with a Tea Party conservative or a Tea I'm sorry a Tea Party reformer who is going to 
really implicate their involvement with the status quo. And, let me and let me so strike this, an let me strike an historical note. Wasn't this division uh, visible way way back, probably uh, way back before 1964? But was it not surely visible in the Republican Party, indeed in the Republican Convention? of 1964 in the division between the forces favoring Goldwater and the forces favoring uh, Rockefeller. Yes. Yes. You, we had, uh, you know, Taft and Eisenhower. I mean, we, we, I, I think that the Republican Party, I think that the Republican Party, you know, you sort of have a trust, and, and I'm not a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt, and I think there, I, I, I mention his name with hesitation because I think there's a lot about Teddy Roosevelt that's not, it's another to topic, another conversation, but you have this sort of Gilded Age Republicanism that gave way to the robber barons, et cetera, et cetera. And then progressivism and, and, and sort of a questioning of that relationship. And, and you, you get to Teddy Roosevelt and trust busting and things like this. And I think there have been sort of these alternative uh, currents in the thinking of the practical Republican Party, which are not exactly analogous to, but which are not entirely dissimilar from, the difference between what is also referred to as the libertarian side of the party, libertarian conservatism, and what is referred to as traditional or paleo-conservatism. And so the, these are, uh, the, the, yes, you are right, there are, there are echoes from before, and indeed at some level, these echoes go back uh, to Roosevelt in the late 19th century. Let me introduce a term that uh, is commonly employed by military analysts. What is the correlation of forces? Within the Republican Party, who's got what kind of power and who's got what kind of plans? And by the way, should we get beyond the two-party, the, the two-group uh, division, if you mention libertarians? Uh, they are, in a way, affiliates of the Republican Party, though they will vote for libertarian candidates uh, some of the time. I suspect most of them, when it comes down to presidential races, inevitably and, in and necessarily vote Republican, even though there is a libertarian candidate. But what's the correlation of forces within the broad ranks of the Republicans? You know, I, I, it, it, it's probably best understood at a state-by-state -state level, but generally speaking, what I hear in Illinois and around the country, is that the folks today with the momentum in terms of generating popular volunteer support are the Tea Party folks. Yeah. And, and, and this is perhaps regrettable, but I think it is a, an element of human nature, and there are a lot of perhaps regrettable elements of human nature, but sometimes political or political movements are best organized around a grievance and a not to say an anger, but a disappointment and a sense of alienation or dissociation. And so the uh, Tea Party folks are sort of capitalizing on a sense, uh, those senses of alienation, disassociation, disservice, uh, et cetera, et cetera, relative to uh, the federal government. And, and, you know, it's a tough time to say no Republicans the real way is to reconcile with the status quo, to look for marginal changes, and, and follow me up that hill of moderation to do battle with Barack Obama and the left-wingers that he has installed in the administrative and cabinet agencies. You know, I mean, that's, 
So I would say the correlation of forces right now in terms of if, if, if you and I were dropping into a generic state today and we were checking out multi-candidate Republican primaries for Congress, generally speaking right now, I think we'd see more volunteer activity behind Tea Party type candidates than behind establishmentarian type candidates. Now, you mentioned, the, uh, you mentioned the grievances that go with being a Tea Partier. What indeed is the basis for grievance? Uh, among uh, those people, reformers, call them what you will, who comprise, in essence, the right wing of the Republican Party. What's, what's well, bugging them? I believe what started bugging them, and I and, and disagree very vehemently with what I'm about to say, but I truly believe that the folks we see in the Tea Party today, the folks who sort of came in together after Rick Santelli's rant on the floor of the uh, uh, Chicago uh, Board Options Exchange that was on a uh, CNBC television. Um, those folks actually were complaining during the Bush years about their perceived the, the 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 spending levels of the Bush administration that they thought were too high. So so these are you ask what the grievances are. Government is too expensive. Government is asking too much of me. I'm I'm surrendering too much of my earnings, too much of my liberty to the government. Uh, and I'm not getting anything in return, and government is going way beyond where it should be. So these grievances line up in you know the, the very personal, I'm being taxed enough already, I don't want to spend another dime, to the more societal. And that is, I'm offended that government is seeping into so many areas of society. I believe government's got to be put back in its box. That's the Jeffersonian assertion I was mentioning. When it comes to correlation of forces, one should also give an estimate of a simple uh, number of people available. Uh, who are the soldiers? What, what That is, how many soldiers are there on the establishment side? How many soldiers are there on the reform or radical or call it what you will side? And what about the libertarians? Yeah. Who's, got, they, the, who, who's got the troops, in other words? Yeah, I, I see more troops on the Tea Party side, and they're generally coming from right-of-center organizations such as, you know, gun rights organization, mm -hmm. life rights organizations, school choice organizations. You know, these are, these have become the engine of the sort of the Republican Party, which is, I don't, you know, it's hard for me to say. I, I think it's very clear the Democratic Party is dominated by the left. I think the Republican Party still remains a party of great intellectual diversity with people going in a lot of on those three points that I just mentioned on gun rights on on the question of life on the question of school choice you got republicans all over the country who are going in different directions on the on the democratic side gun rights no abortion yes school choice no so the the democratic party is much more univocal and the republican party is much more diverse and people have their own you know, sort of come to their own conclusions. To answer your question, the, the establishment generally, generally ends up with the money. So local races, I was saying, if you and I parachuted into a generic state, we'd see the, the, the volunteers on the Tea Party side. Je other things being equal, the local establishmentarian is usually associated with, for lack of a better term, the moneyed interests, Okay. And, and th thus breeds the suspicion 
that the establishmentarians are in fact servants of a status quo that supports a you know sort of a disproportionate level not to say there is a proportionate level a disproportionate level of corporate welfare something like this they're all being paid off uh by the people who are benefiting from the tax treatment that they are ensuring through their service in the Iowa legislature or the House of Representatives, wherever the heck they are. So the money is sort of on the establishment side, generally speaking. The folks are on the um, uh, the Tea Party side. And the, the libertarians, I mean, it's a very intellectually uh, vibrant uh, school of thought and tradition, and there's a lot going on, and people are thinking all the time, and they're coming up with interesting stuff, and there are elements of libertarianism that are being enacted. We saw Colorado and Oregon are going for you know mar- uh, marijuana use and all this kind of, or Seattle, Washington. I'm sorry, uh, but I don't think the, liber- the libertarians, God love them, um, they don't seem to be very effective at truly establishing, definitively establishing any sort of viable third party. And so I think they remain something of an irritable adjunct. They're an adjunct, but they're very irritable. I guess they're like the appendix. You have suggested that, in fact, uh, the uh, Tea Party types, the radical wing of the general Republican Party, is doing quite well in some states. Let's do uh, what, uh, you know, the French call a tour d'horizon. Let's toward the horizon and tell me where they're doing well. Tell me where they had big ambitions, but have fallen on their faces. The biggest, you know, look, we, there's no question they fell on their faces in places like, uh, Indiana, Missouri, and Delaware. And those, and, and they fell on their faces there because they, the tea party ended up supporting candidates who were consonant with their views, but, uh, unelectable or not viable in a general election. So those were very big, significant failures. But there have been successes, and the successes are New Mexico. We have there's a there's a Tea Party oriented governor down there. Uh, uh, Louisiana, Bobby Jindal. Uh, South Carolina, Nikki Haley. One would say that there, even though Christie is Chris Christie, notwithstanding his recent, you know, completely overblown and media manipulated. Uh, political crisis, you know, Chris Christie is a is a very significant force still, I think, within the Republican Party. And Chris Christie has had a reformer's view, a, a reticence to accept any status quo, uh, and 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 a desire, you know, really to critically uh, examine everything and not to dogmatically accept anything. So, so what we see in the laboratory of democracy, uh, i.e., the states, um, like any other. Uh, nascent political movement, there are growing pains, uh, and it's an iterative process in which you'll see we will see situations that result in electoral success. Here, Mike Lee is a former very high-ranking Justice Department attorney, very highly credentialed, uh, very Tea Party-oriented. He's now a United States Senator from the state of Utah. Uh, Ted Cruz, uh, similarly highly credentialed former Solicitor General of the State of Texas, and and you know Tea Party, and he's a United States Senator, and so you've got senators and governors who are being elected, sometimes Congress people, and then you get some flat tires who get nominated, like the lady in uh, Delaware who said, you know, I am not a witch. And yes. Like, nope. What can I tell you? There are accidents <laughs> of bio- there are accidents of biography which sometimes get in the way 
of political aspirations, to be sure. That was one such instance. Uh, I remind you of, and all of our listeners, of an old advertising slogan, which I've always loved. It was for, uh, uh, for a kosher rye bread. In the East, it was Levy's rye bread. Full page ads in the Times. One famous one was uh, a Chinese gentleman uh, eating a piece of rye bread, which he's just removed from a loaf that stands there on the table in front of him. And the legend uh, below says simply, you don't have to be Jewish to enjoy Levy's rye bread. I mention yeah. all of this right now because borrowing from it, I assert you don't have to be uh, a resident of Illinois to learn something about American politics and its dysfunctionality uh, by uh, examining uh, I'm losing the simple thread. You don't have to be, uh, you don't have to live in Illinois to learn something about American politics by looking at Springfield, Illinois. Uh, right. What do we learn from the situation down there, which is a bad situation? And it should interest, it very, it should interest those of our listeners who, don't, who live a thousand miles away from Illinois. Well, I, I, we are, um, Illinois is, in the last five years, lost something on the order of $20 billion of personal income from jobs and individuals leaving the state. That's not an insignificant number. It's not enough to close down the state. And Chicago remains a very vibrant and attractive city. It's a beautiful place. And if you're considering, you know, summer vacation destinations, please come to Chicago, spend your money here. We would love to have you. I'm glad you mentioned summer vacations because you're uh, on the day that we are recording this, the temperature outside is, I believe, minus two degrees. Right, right. So come in the summertime unless you are, you know, like me, a, a former resident of Alaska. But anyway, uh, even some Alaskans would find this chilly. In any case, um, yeah, Illinois uh, has been run by the Democratic Party uh, and it's and and it's sort of um, you know, dominant organizations, the trial lawyers and the public employee unions for the last 10 years. And we, our governor is a guy named Pat Quinn. He uh, became lieutenant governor under a guy named Rod Blagojevich, who's now in federal, federal penitentiary in Colorado and will be there for another 11 years or so. Well, he's and, appealing and, at the, he's appealing at the moment. He yes, might have some hopes that he can get, that he can get out or reduce his sentence. Yes, he may. But according to the sentence as it stands, he's going to be there for another 11 years. And, right. and so, so we're in the midst of a, a democratic reign over the state that has resulted in very high taxes, very high levels of regulation, very high levels of public spending, and very low levels of uh, employment and job creation and personal income and you know, uh, attraction of individuals to the state. And there we is a central over... figure. Who is who's the central figure boss type person? Well, at the state level, I would say the most important Democrat happens to be the speaker of our Illinois House of Representatives, Mike Madigan. Is that who Absolutely. you had in mind? Of course. Yeah. yeah. Who's Mike his Madigan? Da his daughter is his, attorney general of the uh, His daughter is the, the attorney general. She has basically we're, we're, you know, ridden, ridden with corruption um, the Sochi Olympics is really something that you know would resonates here in Chicago, and and so we have an enormous amount of corruption. Lisa Madigan is a part of the uh, obviously the Democratic machine that runs the state, and and you know does very little uh, investigating into official corruption. 
Uh, we have a Cook County state's attorney. I'm not sure that she would recognize official corruption if it, you know, sat down with her at a, at a, at a restaurant table and ordered a, a, a glass of white wine. So, so, you know, we've got a lot of problems here in Illinois, but I want specifically, we are to give people, and I know your podcast is heard all around the world, Milt. Here is an example of how what's happening in Washington is purely derivative of what Barack Obama learned in Springfield. You, you know, you've got very complex regulatory issues that are supposed to go through Springfield. And the Springfield government frequently gets these, in the eyes of folks who have to live under them, wrong. So then they go to court and they try to get these uh, decisions reversed because they are violating some rights of somebody somewhere. And this is the pattern that we have seen with Obama. He can't get something done in Congress. They do something administratively or they countenance something being done by a semi-independent regulatory agency. The people who have to live with that decision then take it to court. In Illinois, we're the only state in the union that had a circuit court of appeal, and ours is the Seventh Circuit, and it's based here in Chicago. The circuit court of appeal, the second highest court in the land, had to metaphorically hold a gun to the head of the legislature to get the state of Illinois to comply with the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. So you see the same kind of liberal interest group domination of the legislative process and result, and then you come up with bad answers like we did on gun rights and the Second Amendment. Then you go to court, then the state gets overturned, and then you're basically forced back into compliance with U.S. law. This is exactly what we see playing out with Barack Obama in Washington on what, you know, he's lost nine cases in front of the Supreme Court in the last three years, and each one of them has been a nine, a zero to nine. He's, they're each unanimous on his attempts to expand federal government power. Uh, so, so there is a dysfunctionality that comes from liberal group domination, and we've seen it in Springfield. We're seeing it in Washington. Is um, Illinois and is thus the government based in Springfield. Is it a freakish instance, or is it, um, does it have many other uh, partners in crime, what might call it, or partners in political incompetence uh, in other states around the country? Um, I, I, that's, a, that, that's, really, that's really the $64 million question. I, I, I think that we're defined by a, I, I believe we're right now in the unwinding of the post-war welfare state with the added issues presented via um, activist public employee unions. That's where we are right now. I mean, the only reason that we're in the, the, the absolute budget morass, you know, in the city of Chicago, the state of Illinois, the United States, that we are in right now is because these pension bills are coming due. And the pension bills all arise from votes taken by legislators whose campaigns were financed by public tax dollars that were funneled through public employee unions. And, and it's that vicious circle, taking from the taxpayer, giving to the union, the union then giving back to the office holder 
who originally took it from the taxpayer so that officeholder can get reelected. I mean, when I, I gave a talk, there were some visiting socialist uh, labor journalists from Sweden who were in town. This is about a year and a half ago. And I, they, they came by my office. There were about six or seven of them. And I gave this overview. And, you know, Milt, when I got to the point in which I said, uh, our public employee unions are allowed to contribute to political campaigns, their, their mouths dropped open. Uh-huh. They were yeah. shocked. Yeah. Because in Sweden, that's not allowed. That's not legal. But we're, we're suffering the effects of that. And, it's, and we're going through major um, fiscal unsustainability because of those choices. Our, the mayor of the city of Chicago just the other day announced, what was it, a $900 billion uh, bond issue he's about to try for? That's exactly right. And I, and I think it points up the fact that he is – now, this, this – please stick with me here. Here's what's going on there. The mayor of the city of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, is not just a Democrat. He's a former high official in the United States House of Representatives, chief of staff to president of the United States. He's a Democrat's Democrat. However, he is facing absolute fiscal Armageddon in the city of Chicago because of pensions. And he's got a decaying, declining, collapsing school system because of the teachers union and its inability to produce consistent educational results. And uh, quietly behind the scenes, like so much in Chicago, he is supporting a Republican candidate for governor whose name is Bruce Rauner. Mm -hmm. So you have Rahm Emanuel, the Democrat, who has told all of his fundraising people through winks and nods, what have you, that it's okay for Rauner to receive their support. So you have Rauner who is espousing a Tea Party program of absolute questioning, top to bottom reorganization. We're going to throw out every assumption. He's a radical. And, and, and Rauner, who's worked, who worked with Rom back in the uh, private sector, I believe that Rom is hoping Rauner will play his deus ex machina in Springfield to bring some kind of reform on the union question, the pension question, and the school question. And, and his, he's borrowing 900 against the chance that Rauner gets elected and changes the, the algebra that he is facing, in which case he could then pay this stuff off and move on. Is that and to advance he, the fortunes of Illinois or essentially to advance the political fortunes of Rahm Emanuel? Well, frankly, I mean, I think that I, I, I think that Rahm is doing the best he can to advance the political fortunes of the city of Chicago, uh-huh. which is as mayor, I think he has to. And he knows that he doesn't have the money to make these pension payments that are looming sort of 14 to, to 24 months from now. And so if if Rauner can get in there and can change, can somehow rejigger that with either state funding or what have you then it will have been a reasonable bet. Uh, and, and so just to, to finally tie this thing up, sorry it took so long, but Rauner has a lot of support from Tea Party-type Republican, not all, but a lot, and he has absolutely univocal support among the biggest Republican and independent political donors in the city of Chicago. 
It's an interesting coalition. And the establishment, the Republican establishment in Illinois, is absolutely terrified of Rauner. <laughs> no surprise. So You know, I cannot resist asking you at this point. And does he also have your support? I've been neutral. I am neutral. I, I, because I have the privilege of going on programs like yours and, uh, you know, my, my Channel 9 uh, uh, activity, and I moderated a debate between the candidates a few weeks ago at the Union League Club. So I'm personally, I, I have my own personal view, but I keep that to myself. And publicly, I mean, I, I just want one of the Republicans to do well enough to win in November, because honestly, Milt, between you, me, your listeners, and the NSA, if Illinois doesn't turn around about 180 degrees in the next 12 to 18 months, I'm not sure. I, I think we could very rapidly become a, a, a Detroit. Not, not, we won't have the blight and the devastation of Detroit, but we'll have the balance sheet and the income statement of Detroit. Yeah. Well, very well said and very telling analysis. Uh, last phase. We've only got about five minutes left. Let me put it to you this way. We'll, we will now leave Springfield. We'll leave Chicago. We'll go up in a satellite, which views the whole country. So we're casting our eye back to Washington and to all the other state capitals, to all the other states, even, of course, including Hawaii and Alaska, who will be involved in the next election. Uh, do you have any sense of where things are going? Are you optimistic, I pessimistic? And if so, why? I had, I had lunch even today, just today, I had lunch with a brilliant young Democrat activist who huh? has been recruited by the White House to work on um, elements of Obamacare uh, uh, sort of establishment in its early months. Her statement to me is that Obamacare is an unmitigated A to Z beginning to end disaster and that the longer it's around, the more people are going to know that and the more people are going to be caught in the gaps or, or the, the crevasses between elements of Obamacare. I think that Obamacare is a cataclysmic disaster that makes the Edsel look like the most successful mm. introduction of a new product ever. And I, 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 that's not to say that, you know, there are a lot of other things going on out there, but I believe we're going to see a Republican United States Senate this year. And I think that we're going to have a presumption about winning the presidency. That's not to ignore the fact that Republicans are genetically inferior at politics and find many ways to lose unlosable races. You would, of course, also favor a Tea Party sort of person to be the presidential nominee. Uh, they oh, I, I agree. I think that Scott Walker, Scott Walker is our Bobby Fischer. Uh -huh. As you recall from your chess-playing days, when Bobby Fischer got his grand mastership, everybody tossed out the old chess books, and they just started reading Bobby Fischer's games, right? Oh. He became the book. Bobby Fischer, you would read his moves, and you'd say, oh, my Lord, look at what he did. And Scott... Walker today is our Bobby Fisher because Wisconsin is flourishing. The government is more strict, is more appropriately ordered up there. The unions have been put into an appropriate place, which is they can, anybody who wants to be in the union is welcome to be in the union. That's exactly how Republicans view unions. Uh, but there isn't compulsory unionism. Scott Walker is showing the way and hopefully it'll be him or somebody very much like him.
Well, that's a fascinating prediction. Fascinating indeed. Who is the current favorite candidate from the establishment point of view? Jeb Bush. Yeah, really? Jeb Bush. Yeah, Jeb Bush is, I, I think the establishment is, is manically going through the three by five cards. <laughs> I mean, they are, it's a manic uh, focus uh, on, on what they need to do here to get to a, a, an establishment uh, standard bearer. And, you know, Jeb Bush was somebody who uh, the Tea Party is so embedded now in what's going on. Jeb Bush took no status quo uh, as given uh, when he approached education in Florida and he changed education. He changed the government down there. But Jeb Bush is in many respects reassuring to uh, the establishment because he's a Bush, because he's been governor of Florida for two terms, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think they're, they're sort of trying, I believe there's a quiet um, coming together of a, 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 a gravitational force over there at the Bush side there. And I think the Walkers, the Jindals, the Nikki Haley's, uh, are, are the, the lady uh, who is the governor of New Mexico. I mean, these, these are other folks. Chris Christie, obviously, has got some political problems, but I wouldn't count him down. I wouldn't count him out. What an interesting prediction. Um, so we'll get over the Adams inhibition. We had two Adamses, the only time we had father and son, and then we had two Bushes, father and son. You're saying now we're going to go to second son. Well, if, if, if Bush proves out on the campaign trail. I think he'll be challenged. I don't think he's going to be alone out there. I think there will be people, you know, Walker has, Walker has very interestingly put down a marker and said, it's got to be somebody from the States and, and you're not going to get a winning candidate out of Washington. I think there's a lot of wisdom to what he says there. He, I think is testing the waters for himself. However, I think he realizes that he's, he doesn't start with the advantages of, you know, somebody from a Texas, like Rick Perry, right? Um, because Texas is so big and there's so much money down there. It's a lot more uh, of, a, of an event politically than is beloved Wisconsin, um, you know, whose southern tier we in Illinois stole so that Illinois would not enter the nation as a slave state in 1818. But that's mm -hmm. another story. Anyway, um, so, you know, I think Walker has said it's got to be somebody from the states. I think he's right. And an interesting thing about Bush is he's from the states. He's not from Washington. And he was deeply critical of the status quo when he became governor. Now, I don't know yet if he's going to be the nominee, but I, I think there will be a good, solid, you know, campaign. And there's going to be a fight for that nomination because people want desperately to come to the aid of their country, which they see slipping away day after day. Well, Chris, you know that in many years of doing a radio program, which ran a number of decades, uh, we had lots and lots of political observers, political journalists and uh, office holders and so on. And uh, you number among the two or three who were uh, of hundreds and hundreds who are the most fluent, the most insightful, the most well-informed and the most uh, appropriate to learn from and I've learned a good deal today. I thank you very much for joining us. Well, great to be on with you. Thank you so much for having me. My great pleasure indeed.